pray with me. Father in heaven, forgive us if we are accustomed to opening up the scripture and casually reading. There's nothing casual about this, for it is the very word of God. You speaking to us enable us to know that, to be attentive to it, to take it up, simply because it is your word and to listen. And God, more than that, not only listen, but but believe. So help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 13, I want to read verses 21 through 38. John chapter 13, please. Hear the word of God. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped it, dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he would give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, taking up this passage is a very significant passage, obviously, in the life of Jesus. He's with his disciples, his very private, intimate moment with them. Uh, He is facing, that is what's on his mind, he's facing his passion. That is, he soon uh, will be Struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane, he soon will be betrayed, he soon will be arrested, he soon will have all kinds of false charges against him, he soon will be beaten, he soon will be humiliated, he soon will be crucified. That's on his mind. And, 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 and while on his mind, then he meets with his disciples, 
so that he can, in a sense, prepare them for what is to come. And he speaks to them about a great many things. He'll speak to them about his crucifixion, about his death. He'll speak to them about his resurrection, that his, his return to them. He'll speak to them of ascension, that is his going away to, to be with the one who sent him to be with his father. He'll speak to them of, of, in all of this, preparing a place for them to go to be with him. He'll speak to them of how they're to live in his absence, if you will, uh, that they're to love one another. He'll speak to them uh, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and that is so necessary because none of this will make sense unless this one, this Holy Spirit, comes and abides with them, lives with them, brings the very presence of Jesus with them, works in them, enables them, and all of that. And so that really, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that's my attention here, this Holy Spirit coming. What does Jesus say about that? But, but, but here he is now, facing that night, being with his disciples on this particular occasion. He began this night as you remember last week, by washing the feet of his disciples. And he did that to give them an example because knowing that he was going from them, how were they to live? Knowing that he was going from them, how were they to treat one another? Knowing that he was going from them, he was going to send them. He was going to send them into the world in such a way that those who received them in his name would receive Jesus. And so they needed to be able to represent him. And so he said, I want to give you an example of how that is because I want to show you my very heart, how I love. And it's a love that, that is based really in humility to seek the interests of others above your own, if you will. And to humble yourself, that is to give up your rights so that you can minister to them and to love them well. And so Jesus did that which no one in the room would do. Jesus did only what a slave would be expected to do. Uh, Jesus washed their feet. Now, now, what would keep them uh, in that state of mind, that humility, is to remember that they needed their feet washed. And, uh, not so much physically, they did. But they knew themselves always to be sinners saved by grace, that is, in need of the forgiveness of God. And he said to Peter, I need to wash your feet. Peter said, no. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part with me. So Peter said, wash everything. Jesus said, no. He said, no, no, you're clean. But I want you to remember that you need forgiveness because you continue to sin. And that will be a reminder to you all the time that you're no better than anyone else. That you're just the same. So be humbled by that and serve even the least of these. But then we can just sense that something turns here. Uh, it says here in verse 21 that Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. In other words, he, he was agitated. He, he was distressed. He was disturbed, even to some extent angered. There was something going on in Jesus. This move of this humility to, to, to serve them in this way and, and to give them this example and all of that. But now something strikes him and, and he feels this agitation in his very spirit, his very, his very soul. And he testifies and he speaks to them about that. John had spoken of Jesus' agitation before his feeling trouble. It was first at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who had died. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus' friends were all weeping around him, around that scene. And, 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 and Jesus was troubled. He knew what he was going to do. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But, but he was troubled in the midst of that scene really angered. Why? Because death was there and he knew that death was the wage for sin. And putting all of that together, Jesus, in a sense, is troubled because he's thinking, this isn't how it ought to be. And I've come to reverse this. 
just earlier, before this night, Jesus was once again troubled in his spirit as he realized the hour had come for him to be lifted up. And then he saw that crucifixion uh, scene before him, and we could all understand why that would be troubling, would be agitated, would be distressing and all of that. But, but, but for Jesus, it was more than that, because it was more than just his death. It was more than just the pain of that. It was being forsaken by his father. It was, it was this whole thing of sin once again in his very eyes, and, and he's agitated by that. He's distressed by that, even angered by that. And, and now we come closer to that moment, and, and he's thinking about what's to take place and he's troubled again in his, in his spirit. And he's troubled because he says, one of you, verse 21, one of you will betray me. It's no surprise to Jesus. He, he had known it from the beginning. He, he knew it when he chose Judas. You, you remember that Jesus, the night before he chose his disciples, the scripture tells us, spent the whole night praying. He didn't make a mistake. He knew what he was to do. He knew the ones he was to choose and he knew what they would do and he knew this one he would choose. Judas would never believe. This one Judas would turn against him. This one Judas who would spend three years with him. This one Judas who would hear his teaching. This one Judas whom he would mentor. This one Judas whom he would even empower to go on these little mini mission trips that he sent them on. Jesus did. And he would see this one Judas. He would see demons being cast out. He, he would see the, those who were diseased healed and the lame walk and, and, and the blind see and the deaf hear and all of that. He would see all of that. He'd be a party to all of that in some measure at various times. All of that. He would, he would have this this relationship with the other disciples and no one would suspect it and, and, and then he would turn at a particular time against Jesus, give him up, uh, give him up to his, to his enemies and there he was around the table. He had just washed the feet of this one Judas. They were around the table on this Passover night. Now it wasn't quite as da Vinci shows it to us Probably it was, it was more that they were reclining, as we have it here, around the table, around the table. And, and generally in that sort of posture, around that kind of meal, uh, they would be around this, this table and, 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 and they're reclining, probably reclining on their left arm, generally speaking. So you can just see this group of men reclining around and, and eating with their right. And it says that John, or this disciple that Jesus loved, was was, was there by Jesus' side in his very breast, if you will, just leaning up, leaning up against him. And so here would be John here and Jesus kind of here and John kind of there. And, and we know it's John. He says it's the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, John IDs himself later in the gospel as this, this very one that Jesus loved. But, but by saying I'm the one that Jesus loved doesn't mean he didn't love the others. It just meant that John is saying I had a special close relationship with Jesus as well as he did, as he did. You know, we can, we can see in the, in, the, in the working of this 12 that very often it was John, James, and Peter that were closest, if you will, to Jesus' his confidants. There was John beside him right there at that place very close. And when Jesus said, there's one of you who's going to betray me, you could see it sort of pricking the ears of Peter, if no one else. And and then Peter, who wherever he was around the table, caught John's attention, didn't say anything. He just sort of motioned to him, ask him, ask him. You're right, ask him. 
So you get the sense as Jesus was sort of, I mean, John was sort of reclining next to Jesus. He kind of would turn his head very close and he could do it privately. Okay, who is it? Who's the, who's the one that will betray us and, and, and betray you? And, and, and we don't know how loudly Jesus spoke it. Probably not very loudly at all. You get the sense that if everybody knew it, they would have tried to stop Judas. They didn't. We went out. But, 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 but quietly, again, it, it appears as if Jesus would whisper back to John, it's the one notice what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a little piece of this. I'm going to dip it in there. I'm going to give it to him. Maybe even as a sign of honor, you know, the host of the meal actually feeding, preparing for feeding the very one there, Judas. And, and he, Judas must have been very close to Jesus, maybe on his other side. And he would take it and give to him. John, at least, who knows, maybe Peter, at least, would know that it was, it was Judas who was going to going to betray him at that point. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Judas. In the sense that here was one who was that close to Jesus, that close to the other disciples, and he never believed. He was there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. He was in those private settings when Jesus would unpack the parables. This is how you understand them. This is what I mean by this. This knowledge is given for you. Certainly he was there when all the miracles were performed, when the 5,000 were fed, when the man who had no eyes, no sight, received eyes, received sight. He was there through all of that and still never believed. In fact, what's amazing here is it appears as if the other disciples had no clue that it would be Judas who would betray Jesus. They didn't know. Jesus never had told them until this night, and then he just whispered it to John. Uh, in fact, when he says to Judas, go do what you have to do and go do it quickly, you would think that they all would have jumped him at that point in time if they knew, but they, they didn't know. Jesus had only said, I'll be delivered up. He didn't say the means by which he'd be delivered up. He didn't know it would be this one among them until he told them, and then they didn't know exactly who. And so, so, so Judas just simply goes, and they thought, well, he has business to do. He's going to give money to the poor or the Feast of Unleavened Bread is coming up right after Passover. Maybe he needs to go buy the supplies for that. So he's off to do that. They, they never really stopped him. So really notice after that. That's why he's gone to do that, to betray, to betray Jesus. But, but rather scary, it seems to me that one could be in the midst of them and no one know that he's really an unbeliever. I think of the words of Jesus when he said that on that day some will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? Didn't I do this and didn't I do that and didn't I do this in your name? And he'll say, I never, I never knew you. You never, you never believed. James Boyce, uh, pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, is now deceased I'm preaching a sermon on this text some time ago. Asked this question. He says, what do we learn from this? What do we learn from the fact that Judas can be amongst them and nobody really know he never believed? Nobody really knows he'd be the betrayer of their Lord. What do we learn from this? And he says, well, well this first. He says, we learn first and foremost that we need more than an example because Judas had the best example. We need more than just teaching. 
Jesus, uh, Judas had the best teacher. We need more than just what we see in terms of even God at work outside of us. We, we need more than just good fellowship. We had the best fellowship with the, the ones who traveled with Jesus in, in, that, in that place. It's like he was in the best small group you could ever have. So what we need is to be born again. What we need is to have a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had spoken of this when he was with that man Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him and Nicodemus says, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life and all of this? And, and, and uh, he's a good teacher. Uh, Jesus knew what was on his heart, what he wanted to know about. And Jesus said, unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot see, perceive the kingdom of God. And this is evidence of that again. That we need that work of the Spirit in order really to believe. And then this too, he said, must guard ourselves. Because you see, it's, it's possible to be in the church and to enjoy the church. And to like the fellowship of the church. And like the atmosphere of the church. And all of that, like, like being associated with the church. But, but still never really Still never really believe. It can be a danger. Because frankly, be honest with you, we're a pretty nice group of people to hang out with. You know, if we have needs, we'll help you. We'll give you something to do. If there are other needs, you can help them. You feel good about yourself and, and all of that. And, and it, it's, it's easy to see the sort of the moralistic life, the good life, if you will, that can take place amongst a group of people who love and forgive and are gracious and help and all of that and miss the very point of it, miss the very heart of it. That's why the author of Hebrews goes to such great length to write to those in the church this, he says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, just be careful in your life. Make, make sure you get it. Make sure you think it through. Make sure you understand what this gospel really is, what this good news really is, what it really says about you and your sin, what it really says about Jesus and his work, what it really says about you and your need for what Jesus did, that you can't, only he can. You must stand in him and in him alone. Trust in him and him alone. You see, one of the great reasons, and I keep apologizing for why we have prayers of confession every week in the bulletin and all of that and why we take the time to do that. But it's such vital importance for us in in the midst of of, of what we understand to be the gospel in ourselves. It gives us opportunity together every week to say, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And, And I say that, and so you know that about me. And you say that, and I know that about you, and we admit it to ourselves and obviously to God. And it's crucial for us, you see. So we don't forget what this gospel really is, what this gospel really does, how it really saves us. And and this passage that by all rights gives us difficulty at times in Hebrews in chapter 6, where the author of Hebrews says, therefore let us... 
leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it's impossible in the case of those who've been once enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. You see, this expression just just, just describes Judas' life. That was true of him. He'd experienced and known all of that. So the warning to us, all right, make sure we, we get it, we understand, we believe. Have you ever wondered, why betrayal? Why is it that that had to be part of this whole event of the crucifixion of Jesus? Why betrayal? Now, now we know that the religious leaders who brought all this about, ultimately taking Jesus to the Roman authorities and all that, we know they were cowards and they were afraid of the people and they really didn't want to, to, you know, be too, to be too known that they were behind all of this. But, but really, couldn't God have arranged it a different way? Couldn't, I mean, they knew where Jesus was most of the time. Couldn't, couldn't they have gotten him without betrayal? Couldn't, couldn't even Jesus turned himself in? What a noble thing that would be to do, to just simply say, listen, I'm in charge of all this, which he clearly was. And couldn't he just go to them and say, the hour is here. Take me away. Let's get this over with. Why this notion really of betrayal well it had been built up all the while i mean this passage that uh, this expression that jesus makes it is he to whom i will give this morsel of bread when i've when i've dipped it that came out of david's life he, he had he had spoken of that before in psalm 41 he, he knew that and so jesus is again as he often did taking up that which the psalmist had written in showing it in his own life. So, so yes, it had been there. Jesus, as we said, knew it all along. He knew the one who would betray him. He chose the one who would betray him. He knew all of that. But, but, but why, this, why this need, if you will, for betrayal? Well, the clue comes in this expression. In verse 27, Satan entered into him. Now, that doesn't take Judas off the hook by any means. It wasn't like he was a puppet at this point in time. Uh, all of this was, uh, was uh, together in, in, in Judas' own desires and Satan's own desires. And, and all of that, Satan, Satan entered him. But, but then we get the picture and we realize why betrayal. Because we know that betraying and deceiving is in the very DNA of this one who is evil, this evil one. He's treacherous. He's deceiving. He, he, he works that way. That's what Satan does you know, one who betrays is, is, is one who, who, who makes you think that he or she is, is, is your friend. And then, at a certain point in time, turns against you. A betrayer makes you think they have your best interest in mind when they really don't. Uh, you think they do, but, but then you realize at a certain point, no, 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 they, did, they didn't. They were just using me. They turned against me at, at my very hour of need. That's what one who betrays does. That's what we find described again by the psalmist David in Psalm 55. He, 
speaks of himself having been betrayed. And he speaks of the betrayer like this. He says, his speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. (laughs) That's a betrayer. You think, wow, this is just, this is the best thing ever. Just going on very nicely, just the way it's supposed to. Couldn't think of it going on any better than this. But yet, war was in his heart. He's going to turn against you and kill you. His words were softer than oil, yet they were really drawn swords. That's what a betrayer does. Makes you think all is well. When all isn't well, makes you think he's on your side when he really isn't. When he has your best interest, but really, he really doesn't. And so that's the very DNA of Satan. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden. He came to Eve, not to Adam. He was the deceiver. Adam was the one who given the command concerning the garden and the trees. And it was Adam who was head of the garden, head of humanity, really, at that point in time. He, he was the responsible party. But, but Satan doesn't come to him. No, no, no. He, he deceives. He comes to Eve. And he has that classic question, that smooth as butter question, that softer than oil question. Did God really say? Did God really say not to eat? But look, look at this tree and look at the fruit. Isn't it really desirable? Doesn't it look good? Why do you think God would want to keep you from this blessing of having this fruit? Don't you realize this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He just doesn't want you to be like him. But if you eat of this tree, you'll be like him. Oh, wow. I can be like God. So surely that's a good thing. So... He deceived her. He betrayed. And then she, Adam. And so what we have here, this betrayal, is acting out the same kind of thing. Satan doing it again. He's using another. He's betraying. He's deceiving. He's taking a friend and he's saying, oh, I love you. But but then this friend betrays with a kiss. And you see, Satan's still doing the very same thing. He has the same pickup line, uses the same line. Did God really say? You sure that's really wrong? Isn't that really right? Classic 1960s Motown. (laughs) Forgive the reference. If it feels so good, how could it be wrong? That's it, you see. That's, that's, the classic, that's the classic line. But you see, the lust that comes to our mind ultimately betrays us into the hand of our spiritual enemy. The lust that seems like, oh, that would be so satisfying. Seems like a friend, but it's really the enemy betrays us, you see. That unresolved anger that feels so good to vent betrays us into the hands really of our enemy that gossip that seems so juicy and so wonderful to know and to think and to share ultimately betrays us into the hand of our spiritual enemy the envy that we have will ultimately betray us we'll think about these things that we ought not have and we'll envy and and, and they'll ultimately betray us we'll think they're going to satisfy us the unforgiven hurt that feels so good to foster will ultimately betray us that act of impatience 
that says, I want to hold upon my own rights. This is, this is right for me to do. You have no right to do that to me. You have no right to inconvenience me in that particular way. Uh, that, that, that act of impatience will betray us into the hand of our spiritual enemy. The blind eye to injustice and the blind eye to the needs of others will ultimately betray us, you see, into the hands of our spiritual enemy. That's what he does. He betrays. And even here, he betrays. It was night. And for John, that expression could is at least this. It's at least a time marker. We know the time of day it is. It's dark outside. It's nighttime. This was an evening meal. Now it's, 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 it's evening, late evening. It's night. Uh, but, but, but we know that especially as John lays out his gospels, we read through it, there is this contrast always, this tension between darkness and light. It is dark. Satan has entered into it. The whole scene is now progressing. In fact, at Jesus' arrest, Luke would say in his gospel, when Jesus was arrested, he said, oh, now this is the hour of darkness. And by that, he didn't mean it's just nighttime. He meant this is the hour that darkness will seem to overtake the light. This is the hour that darkness will will come upon us, that we'll see this real evil being played out. But in the midst of that, Jesus said, in the midst of that night, he said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. In other words, he said, okay, it's dark. The darkness is here. The moral evil is here. All of this coming against God. But in the midst of that, God will be glorified. Now, where glory has lots of nuances. One of, its, one of its, 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 its nuances, shades of meaning, if you will, that helps us is, is light. Because you see, when something is glorified, something is glorious, you can really see it. You, you can see the essence of it. And we see the, the very essence of it. He's saying you're going to see God in the midst of darkness. Light will shine. And you're going you're to really see God at that point. Uh, the scripture says in 1 Timothy and chapter 6, verse 16, that God lives in unapproachable light. And, and what Jesus is saying is you're going to see it here. The light is going to shine in the midst of this darkness. And the contrast will be such that you'll really see this light. And what he's referring to in the midst of that is his death. He's saying that in the midst of my death, which looks like, darkness you'll see the light will shine at that point in time what we'll see is that God is just we'll see judgment really upon sin but we'll see that God is love because he's going to put that justice that judgment not upon the sinners who deserve it, but upon his own son. We see that God is merciful. And he comes because sin makes us miserable. And he comes to redeem us out of it. And that God is compassionate. 
Because he sees our need and he comes to help us at the very point of need that which we can do nothing about in and of ourselves. But he comes, you see, this God does. And we see the very compassion of him. He says, in the midst of this darkness, you will see this light. And, and John opened up his gospel with this expression, that the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. If there was ever time in the history of the world, there's been many times in the history of the world where we look and we think that darkness has overtaken light and we think that darkness is really one. We can plot them out. But if there's any one time in the history of the world that, that, that the darkness appeared to have overcome light is when the Son of God was being crucified. It would be a darker point in all of history than all of humanity turning against the very Son of God. But that was the key event in all of history. If you pardon the pun, the crux of all of history. In fact, always that event will be seen during glory. When John, the apostle, got this great revelation. We read about this in Revelation chapter 5. When he saw Jesus, he referred to him as the lamb looking as though he had been slain. Whatever he saw, he described it like that. In fact, the, the new song, the great song, the eternal song is worthy as the lamb who was slain. Always throughout history, throughout eternity, and that event will be the crux. That event will be the key event of history. Why? Because it's then that the light shone. It was then that the darkness was overcome. That particular moment in time. You see, that's what we need to bear in mind all the time. That's what we need to cro- keep the cross always in view. That's why we put one up here. For you to see, you need to come some morning. I can't predict which ones because it's variable for me. But I come early, various mornings. And I only turn on these lights that, 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 that curve around. I don't know what they're called. We call them cross lights. And they light that up. And everything else is dark in here. And I sneak in because this is my personality. And I I turn on the sconces so I can sit in one of the side pews and read and pray. You need to come some morning. I I don't know when it's going to be, but, you know, usually Tuesdays. Because I always want to do that every day. And Tuesday is my first day of work. And so I think I'm really going to do it every day. And so I start on Tuesdays. But Tuesday mornings, about 60-ish. But the focus is wondering. Because that's it, you see. That's the light (laughs) that overcomes the darkness. That's why Psalm 46, it begins. Even though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea and the earth quakes. That's darkness. <laughs> I won't be afraid. Why? Because the psalmist says, God says, be still. Know that I'm, a, know that I'm God. I will be exalted upon the earth. Meaning, you'll see it. Someday you'll see it. You really will see it. And he says, now take this cross as my down payment. Take this cross as the thing to keep in mind. Take this cross always. And when life becomes dark, see the cross and realize there was no more dark day than that. No darker day than that. And yet, (laughs) at the moment when it was darkest, (laughs) a light was the greatest 
Hang on to that. Hang on to that. And then Jesus says to them after this, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you. By this all men, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But, but, but right before he said that, he made mention to them that he was going to a place they could not go. And that's what Peter caught. So we have to sort of take a, take a bit of a pause here. We'll come back to this loving one another. But, but, but Peter, you see, was, was caught up in this expression. Why can't I follow you? where you're going. And, and, and Jesus said, well, well, you can't follow me now, but, but a day will come when you'll follow afterward. And, and Peter said, oh, I'll, I'll give up my life for you. And Jesus said, you won't even make it through the night. And where was it that Jesus was going to go? Where was it that Jesus was going to go where they could not follow where was it that Jesus was going to go where they could not follow now but, but could follow afterward? Where was all of that? Well, on the one hand, we know immediately he was going to die. And it wasn't time for Peter to die, but a day would come when Peter would die. In fact, John lays out in chapter 21 that Peter would die most likely on a cross. But, but we know that when Jesus was going to die, that he was going to die not simply physically but but he was going to die for the sins of sinners as he would put it for the sins of the world he would die as a propitiation that is to satisfy the wrath of God and nobody could go with him really to do that he would be the one who would be slain for our sins. He would be the one that would take not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood as a satisfaction for sin. He was the one who would go and enter into a temple, not made with human hands, but the temple in heaven in the very presence of God. And he was the one who would take his blood and he would sprinkle it upon that mercy seat in heaven, if you will, to satisfy the wrath of God. And he would be the one, not like the priests who would enter into the temple once a year to do that, but he would be the one, he would be the high priest who would enter into this heavenly holy of holies once and for all time. And, and, and no one, no one could do that other than Jesus. Because you see, he had no sin. So he wasn't doing this for himself. He was doing this for others. So that they could be freed. But a day would come when we would follow after him because he was going there to prepare a place. And so we could come not with him but through him to that place to be with him forever. He had illustrated that, Jesus did, when he washed their feet. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to strip myself of glory, and I'm going to serve you in a way that no one could have ever imagined. And he illustrated that as well at the table. He took bread that was there, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave this to his disciples. 
And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And again, in the same way, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And of all that we remember, what we remember is that on that night, it appeared as if darkness had won, but it hadn't. The darkness could not overcome the glory of God, wherein we see the justice of God, we see the love of God, we see the mercy of God, we see the compassion of God. And he says in the midst of that, then, believe in me, trust me. When it looks dark, hmm, no, that the light is shining. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that we would believe. We wouldn't just hang around. We'd believe. And that we would know that even in the midst of difficulties and confusion and all of that in life, that you will be exalted. You were exalted in Jesus. Glorified. And we can trust you in life and death in every circumstance. Father, I pray you'd set this bread and this juice aside. We may think about this Jesus who went where we could not go so that we could follow afterward. I pray that we would know his presence here and in our lives. And that our faith would be strengthened. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.